Okay. We've got a couple of announcements tonight. One of the things that I'm going to start doing is there are so many things that are happening in this country in legislature, so many bad bills and so many challenges and lawsuits and various things of that nature that what I want to do is start highlighting some of these and then we're going to be uh, praying for them and putting them on, on the prayer list, but this will give you the the background. Uh, the first is a case that uh, relates to uh, a case that is being defended by the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a, a Christian legal advocacy group that defends religious freedom. And the first case I'm going to mention is the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. This involves uh, a cake shop owner, Jack Phillips, who is sued for sexual orientation discrimination because he refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple because of his religious beliefs. ADF defended him and went to the Supreme Court, and on June 4, 2018, last year, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Jack, reversing the state's decision. But less than a month after the Supreme Court ruled, the state of Colorado filed another suit against Phillips for declining a separate request to create a gender transition celebration cake. So you see, they just keep attacking him. And so the ADF has filed a lawsuit on behalf of Phillips against the state for its hostility toward him and his religious beliefs. And see, if we can't if we can't follow the law, we'll just bully the Christians into not taking a stand for what they believe. And so we need to be in prayer for these uh, organizations and ministries that not only keep us informed, but also help defend, uh, defend our rights. <clears throat> Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. And that means that we need to uh, confess sin if necessary. Scripture says that we are to walk by means of the Spirit, but when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the sin nature. In order to be forgiven and cleansed of sin, we simply confess sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and instantly we are forgiven of the sins we confess, and then we are, um, I mean, we're cleansed of the sins we confess, and we're forgiven of all all other sins. So we are restored to that walk by the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So you have the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord and ready to study the Word this evening. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, what a glorious privilege it is to serve you to be brought into a distinctive and unique relationship in this church age to the Lord Jesus Christ, being in him, in his body, being appointed to a mission related to growing to spiritual maturity and having an impact on the world around us through carrying out the Great Commission, which is to declare the gospel to those who need to hear it and also to teach those who are believers to obey all that the scripture teaches. Father, help us to understand these things. And as we uh, teach the word, we need to teach all of the word. We need to teach its significance, what applies directly to today, what has implications for today. 
We need to understand that your word is the most important thing in our life, and when we die, the only thing we take with us is your word that we have hid in our hearts. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the importance of studying the word and reading the word daily and making it a part of our uh, of our thinking and our living. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This evening, we're continuing the study we started last time in 2 Samuel chapter 7 related to the Davidic covenant. Before I get into that, I want to cover a couple of other announcements that are important. First of all, the Chafer Conference is coming up in a month on March 11th to 13th, about five weeks. There are going to be two speakers. The first speaker is Dr. Stephen Gare, who is a second-generation Messianic Jew. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. He's been involved as a pastor of a Messianic Jewish congregation and writing. He's written an outstanding commentary on the book of Acts, and he's a a, a good speaker, and he's going to be speaking on the topic of is the Hebrew Bible, emphasis there on the Hebrew Bible, messianic. And you may not realize it, but there's a tremendous controversy among so-called academics that these weren't really prophecies that New Testament writers just sort of made them prophetic, but they weren't originally intended to be prophetic. So he's going to address those issues, and it's really important, and it will really stimulate you and increase your confidence in the prophetic accuracy of the Old Testament and what has been revealed there. And he'll get into a lot of significant details, some of which you've heard before, some of which you've already forgotten, but you'll be reminded of it, and that's how we learn. Uh, The second speaker is someone who is new to us. His name is Mark McGinnis. He is a Ph.D., and he teaches at Baptist Bible Seminary. We had originally scheduled Dr. Alan Ross, who was a Hebrew prof of mine at Dallas Seminary and now teaches at Beeson Divinity School, but he had to have uh, hip surgery the first week of December, and he has not recovered well from that, and we knew this was coming, so I had Dr. McGinnis in backup mode uh, just in case, and yesterday... Uh, Dr. Ross had to make the tough decision to say that he did not think it wise that he come. He also asked for prayer for his wife. She had the hip replacement surgery a year and a half ago, and unfortunately she has not recovered well either, and she took a slight fall on at breakfast on Saturday and hit her head, a little, little cut, nothing serious. But um, he was very, very concerned about being away from her for four or five days, and and uh, he's having to hobble with usually two canes, sometimes one, and he just didn't think he would be ready to to be here in another month. And it sounds like he's going through a real, a real struggle. So uh, pray for the conference. Pray for uh, Dr. McGinnis that he will be uh, thoroughly prepared. He came highly recommended by uh, several people we know. Mark, I mean. Um, Bruce Baker, who's pastor, spoken at uh, pastor of Washington County Bible Church, spoken here uh, at several conferences. Also, Mike Stollard, who's spoken here before, who is with Friends of Israel, used to be the head of the uh, doctoral program at um, Baptist Bible Seminary, and then also David Roseland, who's been a student there uh, for the last several years, and all of them spoke very, very highly of Dr. McGinnis as a great communicator, great speaker. So we're looking forward to seeing and uh, having him here. So we need to 
uh, be in prayer for the conference. And also, if we have any questions or would like to volunteer, we always need volunteers. Please talk to uh, Cheryl Jeffries. Okay, let's get into what we're talking about tonight, which is the God's covenant with David. And this is the second part. We began this last time talking about covenants. We went through the introductory part of Second Samuel uh, chapter 7. And just to get that context, now, I want to say a couple of things again about the general context in how we read Second Samuel. Second Samuel has three divisions. The first is that God blesses David, and he, David, unites and expands the kingdom. This section has been called by some God blesses David, and it's chapters 2 through 10. Now, the way you and I read books is we think of reading a book in chronological order. And many of us think that as we read through Second Samuel, that when you read Second Samuel 6, it's followed by Second Samuel 7, which is true. And then Second Samuel 8 follows Second Samuel 7. And that's not how they wrote things in the Old Testament. They would write things thematically. What we read in the first verse, I've got this on a slide, but I'll hit it ahead of time now. Now, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around. I pointed out last time you have all mentioned twice, which means it is it, it is inclusive. If you skip to um, down to... Uh, the next chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, we read, After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And then we also read that he defeated Moab in, in verse 2. And by the time we get to chapter, uh, chapter 10, he's, he's in battle with the Ammonites. Now, that does not sound to me like God has given him rest from all his enemies all around. Does it sound like that to you? No, it doesn't. What has happened is that the author has lumped the events together to give us an overview of how God blessed David. But lest we think that David was just some sort of super believer, uh, he was a mature believer, but he sinned like we all do. He then follows that by showing how God disciplined David for his sins and the consequences that David had to live through, most of which directly impacted his own uh, family. But David, because he was spiritually mature, confessed his sin, and that cursing or the judgment was transformed into, into blessing. So chronologically what happens is David sins with Bathsheba, the sin of conspiring to have her husband killed. He is killed in combat as a result of that. And then we see all of the horrible things that happened to David and his family uh, subsequently. It is near the end of his life that we have the events of 2 Samuel 6 and 7. They did not occur early. They occur at the end when there is rest from the enemies. And it is when God then in this in an incredible way, because of all of the sin in David's life, God gives him this covenant. This is a great example of grace. 
uh, in the life of someone who realizes he does not deserve it. And this makes great sense for when we turn to verse 18 of 2 Samuel 7, we see David's response, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? He is just stunned in light of his sins and his failures that God has dealt with him so graciously. And God deals with you and me in the same way all the time. We're all sinners. One of the things that that always has impressed me is, um, is when you study the book of Judges and you realize what failures, spiritual failures, men like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and Barak were, and yet God praises them for their faith at some point in their spiritual life when you get to Hebrews chapter 11. How God evaluates us on the basis of his grace and the fact that we possess the righteousness of Christ is far different from how we think we're going to be evaluated. And I tell you, there are a lot of, there have been a lot of preachers and revivalists over the years who have preached a lot of gloom and doom and fear uh, for people that, that they are going to stand before God even as believers and they're going to go through all of this horrible uh, sin, exposure, and everything else. And the reality is, is that Jesus Christ paid for our sins. They were canceled on the cross. Colossians two twelve to 14, that our sins were canceled, were forgiven. It's obliterated. It's The word there is charizomai, meaning it's an act of grace. But it's obliterated, and it tells us when it happened. It happened at the cross. It didn't happen when you believed, when I believed, there is a forgiveness. There are four different levels of forgiveness in the, in the Bible. There is a uh, legal forgiveness that occurred when Christ, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin, and that penalty is eradicated. But because we're still born spiritually dead and we're still born unrighteous, then that has to be taken care of experientially. So when we trust in Christ, there is an exper- there is a positional forgiveness then that takes place because when we get put into Christ, we are cleansed through the uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit. And so that's our position in Christ, our new identity in Christ because we possess his perfect righteousness. And then the third area of forgiveness is when we confess sin, as we did at the beginning of class tonight. When we confess sin, then we're experientially forgiven and we are uh, restored to fellowship. The fourth kind of forgiveness is what flows from that is that we are to forgive one another as uh, God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Those are the four areas of forgiveness. And David is a classic example of that. And the way it is structured here is to teach about God's blessing first, God's judgment last, and then the wonders of the Davidic covenant at the end in those last four chapters. Now here we're looking at just what happens in these first ten chapters, and we're in the last part where God grants David a special covenant. And whenever you see the word grant, and I use that specifically, But think in your mind for a minute, what are synonyms to granting something to somebody? Another word would be giving something to somebody. A grant is a gift. What does that tell you? What is the one word that ought to come to your mind whenever you hear the word gift? If it's not grace, you need to be here 
more often than you are. Okay, it is grace, and that's what this chapter is teaching. It is teaching all about the grace of God, and in fact, that is one of the lessons that we learn when we study uh, study the covenants. So, here are the basic questions we need to answer. What is a covenant? Second, what are the types of covenants that we have in in the Bible? And not only do we have biblical covenants, but we also have as our first subcategory, theological covenants. Theological covenants. Now, if you haven't grown up in a Calvinistic church, by that I mean a church that completely buys into Reformed theology, then you will have say, well, I never heard of these covenants. And that is because they were theological constructs developed uh, in what has come to be known as covenant theology, which is Reformed theology. Reformed theology is the term that is used to refer to the branch of the Protestant Reformation that occurred in French Swiss, that's Western Switzerland, French Swiss and uh, French territory, the Huguenots, and also... uh, uh, Dutch and Dutch Reformed and in Scottish Scottish Reformed churches, out of Reformed theology came Presbyterian churches and also Congregational churches. The difference we studied this not long ago is a Presbyterian church. The elders are answerable to a hierarchy called the Synod, which in many, unless you're like Bethel Independent Presbyterian out here where you're independent, goes to a hierarchy to a denomination. In a congregational church that still holds to the same church government, they don't have a hierarchy that goes beyond the local church. And so that's the distinction between those two, those two terms. Presbyterian really isn't independent. It really refers to a broader um, uh, organization outside the local church. But in covenant theology or Reformed theology, you have three theological covenants, the theology of grace. Uh, excuse me, I got that backwards. It should, first one should be the theology of works. Adam and Eve were to maintain their status in the Garden of Eden by works. That's a a theological covenant. There's nothing there that indicates any of the things that covenant theology says about a covenant of works. There's a covenant there, but it's not the covenant of works. Then, because they sinned, it's replaced by a covenant of grace. And in some forms of covenant theology, you then have a covenant of redemption. Okay, so those are the three theological covenants, but they're never mentioned anywhere in the Bible. They're just theological constructs that are imposed upon the text in order to make their theology work. Then we have biblical covenants, uh, which we'll talk about, and these are sometimes described as conditional, which means the covenant itself has a condition, and if the person, who, the human who is the object of the covenant does not fulfill the condition, then the covenant can become temporary. So we use these terms conditional and unconditional. Uh, The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional and eternal. The uh, 
the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant are all spoken of as unconditional. Some people want to debate those terms, and another way of speaking about them is permanent versus temporary. This is what the writer of Hebrew brings out, Hebrews brings out in Hebrews chapter 8 when he talks about the new covenant, that the old covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, was designed to be temporary. It was never designed to be permanent. The other covenants were eternal and permanent. So I think that in some ways using eternal instead of unconditional and using temporary instead of conditional is is a better way or a little more clear way of speaking about these things. Then we also have Gentile covenants versus Jewish covenants. Every covenant after Abraham is a covenant with the Jewish people. So before that, the Adamic, the the Edenic, the Adamic, and the Noahic covenants were all uh, were all Gentile covenants because there were no Jews on the earth at that time. Now here's a couple of new terms that we'll talk about more tonight. One term is the suzerain vassal treaty form. Okay, it was uh, this was a form that was used. Uh, typically, uh, there are a lot of examples of it in, in literature that we have uncovered from the Hittite Empire, which is um, uh, flourished from the uh, late late 3rd millennium through the 2nd millennium B.C. That, for those of you who can't quite do all of the math, that's roughly from about 2500 B.C. up through about... Um, up through about a thousand BC, so that would cover the period of the Exodus and the giving, the giving of the law. A suzerain is a king. Uh, synonyms for suzerain be, might be a despot, an emperor, a ruler, uh, a master. He is the 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 leader. So it's the suzerain on the one hand who is the superior, and he is making or entering into a covenant with an inferior, with a servant with someone who is subservient to him, maybe with a client nation that's a vassal nation. And so this is the term that is used in all of the literature to describe this form. Now let me t- tell you a little something. If, you're a, if you have any, <clears throat> any experience in dealing with contracts, if you've been in real estate business, if you've been in a business where you've had to... Uh, take care of a lot of different contracts, if you're you're a lawyer, uh, you know that there are what is usually referred to as boilerplate contracts, okay? So you can uh, go online now, you have all kinds of of legal organizations that have websites, and you can pay, uh, you know, pay a small fee and download a boilerplate will. You can download uh, boilerplate divorce uh, filings. You can download all kinds of different contracts that are just, just the format's always the same. That's a, called just a, basically a form. Now, those forms change from decade to decade. Um, I would assume that if you were a lawyer and you were familiar with 21st century current uh, contract forms, uh, real estate contract forms, that if you were to see a contract form and if it didn't have a date on it or you didn't know what the date was, that if it had certain types of language, 
then you would be sure that that contract could be dated to maybe the 1940s or the 1930s or maybe the 1980s just because of the way the forms change from decade to decade. And there are certain things that were allowed, for example, before the Civil Rights Act in the 60s and certain things that were not allowed um, after that to be in these kind of contracts. So when you look at a contract and you see a certain or a certain style, a certain structure, a certain language, you can you can date it. Well, that's what uh, these forms are. They're, they were contracts or covenants that were used by the Assyrian Empire later on, earlier by the Hittite Empire. And so by looking at the elements there, you can see parallels to what we find in Scripture. Now, let me tell you why that's important. You and I are always being attacked. Why do you believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch? Why do you believe the Bible so? Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Well, one piece of evidence for this is that the Bible claims that it was written during a certain time. For example, Moses was a highly educated uh, man that was reared in the education system of the Pharaoh. He grew up in the household of Pharaoh for his first 40 years, and he would have been completely familiar with all of these uh, forms and, and, and structures. Uh, the Suzerain Vassal Treaty Form was the way in which these uh, kind of uh, arrangements uh, were, were structured at the time of Moses. But if you went five or six hundred or even a thousand years later from 1400 to 400, or if you went from 1400 to 1200, you would have a different form. And somebody who wrote in 1200 would not be familiar with the forms, with the boilerplate of the 15th century B.C. And so this gives us great confidence that the Bible was written in the time it was written because it uses, as we've discovered these various forms through archaeology, it uses those forms. And they're very interesting, and we can learn a lot of things uh, from that. We also have, we'll talk about the Jewish covenants, which is the structure for understanding the Davidic covenant, because we have the Abrahamic covenant that is the uh, the the sort of the grandfather or the root of the other three covenants. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to Abraham that he would give him a piece of real estate. And so it used to be called the Palestinian covenant back in the 19th and through much of the 20th century because until Yasser Arafat came along and co-opted the term Palestinian and applied it to his ragtag bang band of Palestinian Arab, excuse me, Arab terrorists, Palestinian referred to Jews. And the land of Palestine was a name, Palestine was a name that had been imposed upon that uh, territory by the uh, Roman Emperor Hadrian in about 135 A.D. So now we refer to it mostly as a land covenant or real estate covenant because that gets away from all the uh, semantic problems with the term Palestine. The land covenants expanded in Deuteronomy 30. The seed covenant has two at, promise has two aspects. One is the seed in terms of all of his descendants, 
That would be seed in the sense of a plural, but also seed in the sense of the singular. As Paul says in Galatians 3, the seed, singular, refers to Jesus, the Messiah. And he is the Messiah because he is a descendant of David. So the seed promise in the Abrahamic covenant is expanded on in the Davidic covenant. So the land promise is expanded on in the land covenant. The seed promise is expanded on in the Davidic covenant here in 2 Samuel 7. And then the worldwide blessing is expanded on in the uh, new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. All of these have the form of a royal grant. Okay, there's an important distinction between the two, which we'll get into in a minute. The Mosaic Covenant follows the pattern of a suzerain-vassal treaty. So we have this contrast, and we'll look at it in a minute because that's going to help us understand things. And it's also going to educate us because this is the language of, uh, you, you look things up in a Bible dictionary, you look up covenant, it'll talk about these things. Um, I'm really been immersed in this for the last uh, seven or eight months because with the group of pastors I've been meeting with on on Friday morning, uh, we have been studying two different books on the New Covenant, and we have been drilling down in all kinds of minutia related to uh, related to the New Covenant, and almost every article that we read refers to and goes through information related uh, to these covenants. So that's what we're covering. What's a covenant? That's the first question. I pointed this out last time. It is a legally binding agreement or promise between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. Now, that's really critical. God's going to do something, but he couches it in legal language. God lowers himself to our level to bind himself in a legal agreement with fallen human beings. Isn't that something? God wants to make sure everything is done according to a righteous standard so that it will be just. This eventually plugs into our understanding of the angelic conflict because when we study the angelic conflict, we realize that there was uh, a trial in eternity past. We've been studying this in our class in, in 1 Peter uh, 5 on, uh, on Thursday night. And I pointed out last time that this wasn't something that was uh, ginned up or imagined in the 20th century by, by Pastor Theme or by Lewis Berry Chafer or by Donald Gray Barnhouse, but that it goes back into the 19th century and probably goes back earlier that there's an understanding that there is this trial that occurs for the angels in heaven. And that as a result of that, we see that all of human history is structured in God's language in the Bible with these legal terms, terms like covenant, terms like righteousness and justice, terms like um, <clears throat> justification, propitiation, expiation, all these big theological words that people don't want to use anymore because they're dumbing down the Bible so that everybody uh, can understand it with a first grade education because uh, they're not getting educated very well anymore, either in school or in the home, and they don't know how to read 
words that have more than three or four syllables. And now you can pick up the NIV, you can pick up the ESV, you can pick up a number of these modern translations, and they don't use these words. They're time-honored theological terms that were chosen by the translators uh, of, uh, of the English Bible in centuries past in order to communicate these specific uh, dimensions of Christ's work on the cross, everything structured within the framework of, a, uh, of, of the law. And so God isn't functioning willy-nilly. He doesn't go outside of the law. He tells man exactly what, what he's going to do and what the structures are. And so we have these identified in, in covenants. As I pointed out earlier, we have these theological covenants. Then we also have these biblical covenants. And the biblical covenants that we're talking about, uh, we'll go into in just a minute. We have the covenants with the Gentiles. We have the Edenic covenant, Genesis 1 and 2. We have the, the Adamic covenant, Genesis 3 uh, through really 8. Then the new, the new covenant with Noah is given in Genesis chapter 9. Those are all with Gentiles. Then we have something totally new that begins with Abraham. And we have these specifically identified in the Bible as covenants, a covenant with Abraham. We have a covenant with, with Moses. We have a covenant with uh, the, the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30. We have the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And we have the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. There are other covenants that are also mentioned. Uh, turn with me in, to Numbers chapter 25. Now, Numbers chapter 25 is a secondary covenant, and it is given as an award to uh, Phinehas, who's a descendant of Aaron, and he has been faithful in defending the priesthood in Numbers chapter 25, and we'll look at verse 11. Numbers 25, 11. And this happens after that strange little incident that occurs with Balaam and his prophecies, and then he um, seduces Israel, gives the um, uh, uh, gives them the idea that that they can seduce and destroy the Jews by seducing them with the temple prostitutes, and so uh, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar. Uh, steps to the plate, and he is going to stop all of this um, infidelity that is taking place between the men of Israel and the temple prostitutes. In verse 7 we read, Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped amongst the children of Israel. That plague was God's divine discipline on the Israelites for this uh, horrible immorality that was taking place. Verse 9 says, those who died in the plague were 24,000. So Phinehas stops this by being faithful to God and killing the man who is guilty of inciting all of this infidelity. And so as a result of that, we come to verse 11. 
Benehaz, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath, this is God speaking, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. So Aaron is the high priest, and the high priest is supposed to be descendant from Aaron, but because of this, there's going to be a covenant of an everlasting priesthood that will come from Phinehas. And that's what is outlined here in Numbers 25, 13. It's, it's like a grant. That's what we're going to see because it is freely given by God, who is the king, to a faithful subject. It is a gift, no strings attached, and it is eternal. It's an everlasting priesthood. The other thing I want you to note here is that God is is swearing this, and that is what enacts the covenant. There's no sacrifice. See, a lot of people think that a sacrifice is necessary for a covenant to go into effect. But there are many covenants, including the Davidic covenant, that do not have a sacrifice with them, as well as the covenant uh, with um, uh, Phinehas. So what we see is that A covenant is a legally binding agreement. All ancient Near Eastern covenants were legal instruments, and like any formal contractual document, there were rigid guidelines for how they were written and how they would would be uh, enforced. Covenant enactment was was precise, just as covenants today are precise contracts. You sign a contract with Visa for your credit card. It's going to have different terms than your next-door neighbor. You can't go out and tell your your uh, Visa card uh, holder that, that you want to just pay uh, 7% interest because that's the contract your neighbor has. You have to go with the 11.5% that's on your contract. Same thing with your mortgage. You can't just pay um, 2% because your neighbor got a good deal. You have to pay your 4.5% in order to uh, fulfill the the uh, stipulations of your contract. So uh, this is the nature of contracts. They were legal documents, and there was the between two parties or groups of individuals, and so we always see that there is one, for example, in the covenant with of the everlasting priesthood, this treaty of peace, God is the party of the first part, and Phinehas is the party of the second part. In the Davidic covenant, God is the party of the first part, and David is the party uh, of the second part. And so this helps us to understand these, these covenants. So here we have all of the covenants on this chart, the Edenic covenant is in Genesis 1, 27, 28, where God says, I will make, my, make man in my image. In fact, the use of the term image and likeness are terms that would be used in a covenant. So that's covenantal language there, even though the word covenant isn't used there. And so I have Hosea 6, 7 up there on the on the screen because... And among the theologians, there's a debate. You'll have people say, well, doesn't mention covenant until Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And therefore, you can't say that there are any covenants before that. And so if you go to the Noahic covenant, you have the statement that 
um, that where God says to Noah and his descendants, you'll be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same thing that God told Adam. My point is that if you look at all the things that are said by God to man, all the obligations that are and promises that are made by God to man in Genesis 1 and 2, that they get modified category by category in the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Man was to rule over the animals in Genesis chapter 1, but now there's going to be uh, some changes, and that's going to affect the animals who are now going to be under a curse. And later on with the Noahic covenant, there will be fear for man on the part of the animals. Uh, so you see that, that if, if you have all the same elements spoken of in each of these passages, if the third one is a covenant and it is refining the stipulations in Genesis 3, which refines the stipulations in Genesis 1 and 2, then they all have to be covenants, even though the word is not used uh, uh, until you get uh, to Genesis chapter 9. Those are Gentile covenants, and they are eternal covenants. They're just each, the Adamic and then the Noahic modifies the first creation covenant, and the Noahic covenant is in effect until the earth is destroyed by fire. God will never again destroy the earth by water. That's the significance of the rainbow because we only see that when it is raining, but other stipulations in the covenant are capital punishment for murderers and also that we are to eat meat. Prior to the Noahic covenant, man was a vegetarian. Man did not eat animal flesh. But it is not only authorized, it is mandated in the, uh, in the Noahic covenant. So I always say that when you see a rainbow, go eat a steak and make sure you are voting for people who are going to enforce the uh, capital punishment because as long as you see that rainbow, those aspects are still in effect. Then because of the Tower of Babel and man's failure there, God is no longer going to work through all of the nations. He is going to work through one man and his descendants, Abraham. And so he enters into a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant is a royal grant. And we'll get into the details of the Abrahamic covenant in a minute. Uh, as I summarized it earlier, there are three parts to it, land, seed, and blessing. The land covenants developed in Deuteronomy 30, Davidic in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The <clears throat> um, new covenant replaces the old covenant. This is the Mosaic Covenant, which was designed to be temporary. So the New Covenant will replace in the future the, um, the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I pointed out earlier that there's debate over the, whether there's a covenant in Eden. And the second line of evidence is a statement in Hosea 6-7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So it's comparing Israel's transgression of the Mosaic Covenant to a previous trans, uh, transgression of a covenant by someone identified as Adam. Now, this could be Adam meaning all of mankind, or it could be Adam meaning Adam the individual. But if it's referring to all of mankind, when did the human race transgress a covenant? Romans 
chapter 5, 12 to 14. In Adam, all die. It was Adam's sin that caused the transgression of the covenant. So uh, those who are arguing that Adam just means mankind are being rather um, uh, facetious, rather, um, in their understanding. This is just, just silly to try to argue on this kind of point. So Hosea 6-7 clearly indicates that mankind in Adam transgressed a covenant, which means there had to have been a covenant in existence, and the only thing that would have been there would have been the um, uh, uh, Edenic covenant. Now, in this next chart, I want to emphasize one element that we have in covenants, and that is their promises. The Abrahamic covenant had a promise of land, seed, or blessing. Each one of those had a promise. The land covenant that all of the land would eventually be given to Israel and they would live there in peace forever and ever. The uh, seed covenant is that there, at the time that the land is given to Israel, there would be a descendant of David sitting on the throne who would rule in truth and righteousness. And then the new covenant is that there would be a spiritual change on the part of Israel because that covenant is only with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and that that covenant would go into effect at the same time changing the spiritual nature of the Jewish people. And so those three come together at the same time. So we're living in an era of promises, Hebrews 11 talks about the fact that those great spiritual heroes listed there had promises that they didn't see fulfilled, and they're looking forward to their fulfillment. And they will be fulfilled in the future. Now, on that timeline from past to future, I'm going to put the dispensations. And here we have the dispensations, mostly of Israel here, uh, going back to the Uh, formation of Israel, the patriarchs and Moses, all the way through the Old Testament, uh, when when these prophecies and promises are made. So we have the Abrahamic covenant that is made with Abraham in a roughly 2200 B.C. and promises land, seed, and blessing. Then Deuteronomy 20 or 30, we have the real estate covenant, uh, the land covenant made, and then we have the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7 and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, when are these fulfilled? These are fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes back. Now, a question that comes up, and I, this is an older form of this chart because I corrected it in some other charts. Um, you have... A problem, and that is that people have been taught that somehow the new covenant applies to the church, but there's no statement anywhere that applies it to the church. Jesus Christ said, the last of this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. Who's he talking to? Who are the you? Church age believers? Who's sitting there? 11 disciples who are Jewish and represent the Jewish people. The church hasn't started yet. He hasn't given the upper room discourse yet, which teaches about 
the church. He's talking to them. One thing that happened on the cross is that's the sacrifice that is the foundation of the new covenant. That's for the Jewish people. A second thing that happened is he paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world. Okay, those two are separate aspects. There were many things that happened on the cross. Those were just two of them, but they're not connected. They are distinct. Will we participate in the new covenant? In the future, we will because we will be the the bride of Christ serving with Christ, ruling and reigning in that kingdom that is grounded on the new covenant. So, yes, do we have a role in relation to the new covenant? Yes, but it is in the millennial kingdom. It is not today. So when Paul says, I'm a minister of the new covenant, he's proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles and Jews in this dispensation. And if you believe the gospel then when we come back at the end of the tribulation with Christ, we will rule and reign with him. That is when we have a relation to the new covenant, I believe, because we are in Christ, because he is the party, the first part, in terms of that, in terms of that covenant. Now, there's a lot more that goes with that, and I'm in the middle of refining a lot of my ideas about the new covenant as a result of the study we're doing. But this is, this is what we see, is that these covenants are all Jewish and they're all fulfilled at the same time when Jesus Christ returns and establishes the kingdom. So, let's go to the suzerain vassal treaty form. I talked about this, I used the terminology earlier. This was a treaty, basically, that was entered into by a king after he had conquered some other neighboring countries. And he would say, well, I've done these things for you. I've provided for you. I've given you all of these, uh, all this protection, my army guards, uh, your towns and everything. And so as a result of, of this, I am going to uh, enter into this treaty with you and... I am going to expect you to do certain things. That's, that's the essence of a Susan Vassal treaty form. Is, I've got a nice little chart to go through here in a minute. But it had a form, and that form was a historical prologue. Now, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai follows this format. There's a historical prologue, what God had done for Israel. This is listed in Exodus 20, uh, verse 2, second part of the verse, and Exodus 19, 1 through 4. There's a preamble. And in the preamble, this is a, uh, an explanation of what the, an overview of what the covenant is going to be, be all about. And it is going to give information about, uh, in relation to that particular covenant that is going to, uh, that is going to come about. So that's the preamble, the introduction to the covenant, and then there are stipulations. You have general stipulations or general requirements, and then there are specific requirements. General requirements are spelled out in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 17, and the specific requirements are spelled out in Exodus 20, verses 22 
to 23:33, the end of that chapter, there is a provision given to read it. This is why Moses had two copies of the law, and one is put in the Ark of the Covenant, is because it's stored there for future generations. But then there's another copy that is taught from to teach the people what the stipulations of the law are. Then there are witnesses. In Exodus, it's all the tribes and the altar, left out the R, in Exodus chapter 24. In Deuteronomy, which follows the same pattern, God calls on all of heaven and all of earth. Now, not the geophysical heavens. That's just stars. Who inhabits the heavens? The angels. That's one group of sentient beings that God has created. And he calls on the earth. Earth is inhabited by human beings in his image and likeness. That's the only the second group that God has, um, God has created. The only the second group. There's only two groups of sentient beings. Angels who inhabit the heavens and human beings who inhabit the earth. So God is calling on these witnesses to the covenant. So how many witnesses do you have to have? You have to have two witnesses at least to confirm something. So uh, all the tribes in the altar in Exodus 24 and uh, heavens and the earth in Deuteronomy. And then there are going to be blessings and curses that if you are obedient then I'm going to do all these wonderful things for you. If you are disobedient, then I am going to uh, discipline you harshly. And that's where we have the five cycles of discipline in Leviticus chapter 26. The purpose for this, this kind of a treaty, the purpose for the Mosaic law, is to encourage people to be more faithful and more obedient. The carrot and the stick approach. So let's... And then the other is if you're a vassal and you've been loyal and you've been faithful and you've done everything well, then the king might come along. Nothing says he has to, but he might come along and give you a wonderful gift just out of the goodness of his heart. And that's called a royal grant. It's grace. Okay, so let's look at some of the comparisons here. Because the Abrahamic covenant is a royal grant. That means that the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, because they develop aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, must also be royal grants. So a royal grant is a gift to those who've already served their master with great loyalty. Abraham was saved long before Genesis 12. The grammar of Genesis 15:6 indicates that it is a it, it doesn't flow from Genesis 15:1 through 5. That's God's promise that Abraham is going to have a son from his own body. And then then Genesis 15:6 is like a parenthesis. And the the verb there is is a perfect tense and it says and it's like a reminder. Remember Abraham had already believed God way way back there and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So this Abrahamic covenant, the promise of a seed, is a gift to someone who's been a believer and is faithful and loyal, and now God is choosing to bless him in a special way. He's not the only believer. We've studied that last time. Lot was a believer. Job was a believer. Melchizedek was a believer. There were many, many other believers at that same time. So Genesis 26.4, 
God outlines this. He says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice. It's a reward to a vassal who has been loyal. See, God always works with rewards. It's not contrary to grace. Now, another aspect of the royal grant is that it, is an, it obligates the king to do certain things for the vassal, for the servant. The king willingly enters into this contract to say, I'm going to do this for you because of your loyalty to me. This is a reward. And so the king is obligated to fulfill the contract, not the servant. It's from the king. So it also is protecting the servant. In a suzerain vassal treaty form, let me go back to this one, it's not a reward for loyalty. It's an inducement to greater loyalty. It's to motivate them to be more loyal. Perhaps they will receive a reward. In the suzerain vassal treaty form in the second slide, the obligations of the vassal to the king are spelled out. That's the Mosaic law. This is all the things you have to do in order to serve me. You have entered into this contract. You agreed to it. You said, I will do everything that's in there. These are your obligations. So it defines what vassal loyalty is, whereas the royal grant, remember, is a reward for vassal loyalty. Third, royal grants have curses in them, but they are directed to those who would violate the rights of the vassal, the rights of the servant. If you harm my servant, I will harm you. If you curse Abraham and his descendants, I will curse you. See, the curses are directed to those who would harm the servant. The king is going to guarantee that. So it's protecting the rights of the king's servant. In a suzerain vassal treaty, the curses are directed to the vassal, to the servant, to Israel. If you disobey me, then I'm going to bring a drought. I'm going to bring plagues. I'm going to bring wild animals. I'm going to bring the enemy, and they will uh, tear up your fields. If you disobey me, I will eventually take you out of the land. That fits a suzerain vassal treaty form. The royal grant lists the benefits that the sovereign promised the servant. This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to, to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants that you can't number. And you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. It was promissory. That's another term that's being used today to describe these things. It's the promise of what the king is going to do for his servant. In a suzerain vassal treaty, like the Mosaic Law, it's going to give a list of laws that the vassal must follow in order to serve the king. It's obligatory. This is what you have to do. This is what you, the servant, are obliged to do. So now that gets into this. It, 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 I love studying all of this because it, it just opens up our understanding of what is going on in, in the Mosaic Law and what's going on in these other covenants. Now, just quick summary slides here. The Abrahamic covenant is summarized in the first 13 verses of Genesis 12. This isn't the covenant. The covenant is given and is actually cut in Genesis chapter 17. 
This just summarizes its land, seed, and blessing, okay? Then, later, God is going to enter into other covenants, grants with Israel, expanding on each of these. So the land promise is expanded in the land covenant. I said Deuteronomy 30 earlier. It's Deuteronomy 29. Correct that if you're taking notes. The seed is in 2 Samuel 7, and the blessing is described in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, we're not going to talk about the land covenant or the new covenant. Uh, Since we're in 2 Samuel 7, we're going to talk about the Davidic covenant. And this is just a nice chart to break down what is promised in the Davidic covenant. The key passages are 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, Psalm 89, it's a long psalm. That whole psalm is David meditating on and thanking God for giving him this covenant. It's a great, great psalm. And then the parallel passage to 2 Samuel 7 is 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. The only difference between 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 is 2 Samuel 7 is focusing on the physical descendant of David, which is Solomon. God says, if he disobeys me, I'm going to punish him. But that's not reiterated in the second chronicle. I mean, in the first chronicles passage, because the first chronicles passage focuses on the ultimate fulfillment, on the ultimate son of David, who is Jesus Christ. So David is promised an eternal house. House is a term that is used whether you're in a Hittite contract or a Syrian contract. It refers to a dynasty. I'm going to set you up as a dynastic ruler in Israel. This is in 2 Samuel 7, 11, 13, 16, 13, 7, 11, 13, and 16. We'll cover these next week. 1 Chronicles 17, 10. Second, he promises an eternal kingdom. And third, an eternal throne. Well, the person who sits on eternal throne has got to be eternal. The person who is ruling an eternal kingdom has to be eternal. And the Uh, eternal dynasty either has one person after another or it's going to end in somebody who is eternal. All of these indicate that the one who ultimately fulfills this is an eternal person who is divine. Only deity is eternal. And so they all suggest that the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is going to be on somebody who's both human and divine, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll come back next time and look at the specifics of the covenant, and then we will see how that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to um, learn some new facts about covenants and its significance of the ancient Near Eastern background and how that helps us to to understand more of what is going on in in these great, great covenants that you gave to Abraham and to David. And we pray that we might realize that this isn't just some something in ancient history, but that the certainty of the fulfillment of your promise to them is the basis for the certainty of your fulfillment of the promise to save us. And therefore, we know that we are eternally secure in our salvation. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.